0: Welcome to the latest episode of our podcast series for financial advisors. Today's episode is Learning from the Leaders, Bob Mulholland on Roadblocks, Change, and the Wave Towards Independence. It's a conversation with the former UBS leader and current member of the Steward Partners Board of Directors. I'm Mindy Diamond, and this is Mindy Diamond on Independence. podcast is available on our website, diamond-consultants.com, and on advisorhub.com, as well as Apple Podcasts and other major podcast platforms. If you are not already a subscriber and want to be notified of new show releases, please subscribe right on your favorite podcast platform or on the episode page on our website. And if you find the content in this series to be useful and know others who could benefit from it, please feel free to share it widely. Admittedly, I feel pretty lucky. The work that I do as a recruiter, author, and podcast host affords me the opportunity to speak with advisors at all levels on through to industry change makers. And better yet, I get to share those conversations with all of you, which is extraordinary in and of itself. So I'm grateful to welcome today Bob Mulholland to the show because there are few people in the wealth management industry that can claim Bob's experience, which started off at Merrill Lynch, first as an advisor, and then as head of Merrill's client relationship group with over 14,000 advisors in North and South America. After 25 years at Merrill, Bob served as the president of Sound Securities, an execution only broker dealer. Yet it was in 2009 that many feel came the most pivotal point in his career. That is when his former Merrill colleague and then UBS America's CEO, Bob McCann, tapped Bob to join him on what McCann called his renewal team at the struggling UBS Wealth Management Unit. UBS was in tough shape following the 2008 crisis. Industry media reports said that advisor headcount within the Wealth Management Group dropped over the next three years from 8,248 to 6796 and $32 billion in assets walked out the door. But as many will tell you, Bob played a key role in the turnaround of the firm. In conversations with managers at UBS, they tell me what was most compelling about Bob was his previous experience as an advisor, which gave him a unique perspective to truly understand what was important to the sales force while it was his leadership, That helped drive positive change. As Bob McCann's second-in-command as the head of the Wealth Management Advisor Group, Bob oversaw some 7,000 advisors, plus UBS's investment products and services platform. He retired from UBS in 2015 and in May of this year was named to the Board of Directors of Steward Partners. I'm excited to have Bob on the show to talk about his long career and get his take on the wealth management world as we now know it. So let's jump right in. Bob, thank you so, so much for joining me today.
1: It's uh, my pleasure. Thanks for the opportunity.
0: You bet. Lots I want to ask you. So first of all, I know that your name is a very familiar one in the wealth management space, both amongst advisors and branch managers, and also someone who is really very well regarded. But most recently, I want to just for some background, you served as the head of the wealth management advisor group at UBS. While the bulk of your career, some 25 years, you were in, in the senior field leadership role at Merrill. And there was a five-year stint between the two firms when you served as the president of an execution-only broker-dealer. So would love it if you would just take a minute and tell us about yourself, if you would. What led you from Lehigh University to the world of financial services?
1: All right, great question. First, I'll tell you that I graduated from Lehigh in uh, 1974 for the uh, students of economic uh, conditions at the time. It was a pretty deep recession. So it was tough to get a job. I landed a job with a friend of mine at uh, Roadway Express, which was the largest trucking firm in the United States at the time. Roadway did is they paid you more than I would have made at some other firms, but they made you work a lot harder. So truth be told, at Roadway, we generally would work 60 hours a week. So um, the one good thing I, I know about Roadway, and I say to people when they ask, well, how did that help you? I said, it taught me how to work hard. Um, in 1977, three years later, I got married, still married now, 43 years, have two kids, they're grown, they're, uh, they're off the payroll, they have kids, I have five grandchildren, so let's just say life is pretty good.
0: Uh, life sounds really good. That's wonderful. So why Merrill Lynch then as your first stop?
1: All right, well, after five years at um, at Roadway, I realized I didn't want to be in the trucking business the rest of my life, and I knew some folks who are in the, we'll call it the stock brokerage business. And I said to myself, you know, they're not any smarter than me. I know that they don't work as hard. So I asked a friend, "Um, if I work 60 hours a week, can I make more than I do now? And his answer was, in the brokerage business. And his answer was uh, yes. And that was a seminal point in my life. I said, okay, I'm in. So I was told that Merrill Lynch had the best training program, which I still to this day believe at the time that they did it's an interesting story because I had four interviews and uh, I said, they just keep having me come back and come back and come back. And then they screwed up my appointment for the famous Merrill Lynch simulation. And I was told "Uh, you're not set up today. And I just went back to the office and I said, I can't take another day off. I can't go back to this simulation either. You know me after four interviews, whether you want to hire me or not. And truth be told, I never did go to the simulation. I'm the only person that I know that never went through the simulation, you know, uh, back then. So I guess I was the lucky one. If I did do the simulation, I probably wouldn't be in uh, the business today.
0: Oh, it's so funny. And then you were at Sound Securities, the uh, execution-only broker-dealer, and then UBS. So Sound Securities between Merrill and UBS. Why the change?
1: Yeah, well, I, You know, I liked my stint at Sound. I was working with... Um, very good friends of mine. One was my manager uh, back to at Merrill back to 1982. We had a nice little firm. We were growing. But quite frankly, at the time I was 57 years old, I had to take stock in myself and said, you know what, I still have a little gas in my tank and I have some time for one more run if I had an opportunity. And the UBS Opportunity presented itself. And quite frankly, I jumped at it. And it, it, what it did is it gave me the ability to do what I did at uh, Merrill Lynch, which I love to do, is run a sales force. Uh, yeah. Going in, I said to myself, "If I'm 57, I'm going to give this five to seven years. In five to seven years, it'll give uh, me and the team a good chance to turn around a major firm." And it was, uh, it was, it was pretty exciting.
0: Yeah, and I want to come back to that, but let me, for perspective, also right now. Speak of gas in your tank, in May of this year, it was announced that you joined the board of Steward Partners. And for anyone not familiar, Steward is what we would call sort of a quasi-independent firm, a firm where advisors are part of an independent partnership, if you will, but have all of the plug-and-play infrastructure of a traditional firm. And I imagine that any one of the many firms in the independent space would have loved to have someone like you join their team. Why Steward?
1: Well, there's a uh, fellow that I know named uh, Doug Kentfield, And Doug, I knew from back at Smith Barney, and he also has a place down at the Jersey Shore near me. And so I was talking to Doug, and Doug said uh, that he had just joined Stewart Partners. And I said, who's Stewart Partners? And um, he explained a little bit to me and came to me a little bit later and said, the management team and the, and the board would like to talk to you about possibly joining. So I said, okay, I have no problem talking to them. And when I did, I liked everything I saw at, uh, at Stewart. To me, there are things that are important in a firm, and they probably ticked off every one of them. I found the firm to be really client focused, which is probably most important. In, in no specific order, the management of Stewart, all of them were FAs, and I respect that. And I was an FA, and I thought it really helped me do my job. Stewart allows the FAs to pretty much run their own businesses, they're somewhat flexible. A very important part of Stewart that I really liked is all employees, down to the receptionists our owners of the firm and there's their shareholders and they own stock. And as a matter of fact, uh, Stewart is the only firm that did a tender of uh, some shares in 2019, which gave people liquidity of yep. the private stock that they had in there, which I thought was very cool. And you know, a couple of other things in, in looking at it, I wanted a firm that was growing, not shrinking. And uh, Stewart was growing like a weed, very, very strong relationship with Raymond James. And I've always respected uh, Raymond James. You know, believe it or not, I respected the fact that they allowed FAs to have their own books. They didn't tie themselves to the books and say, those are our books. And I think that that shows respect for the FAs. And, um, you know, lastly, there's flexibility within Steward. You can be 1099, run your own business, have your own business, or W2, have your business within Stewart. So quite frankly, when I looked at it, Stewart offered everything that I wanted in a firm.
0: Yeah, and maybe the precursor even to that question. And we're big fans of Stewart, I might add. But perhaps the precursor to that question is more why the independent space. I mean, I have to imagine that five years ago, when you left UBS, while the migration toward independence had already started, it probably wasn't quite as accelerated as it is today. And I find that most wirehouse managers are pretty unfamiliar with the options in the independent space. I mean, your comment, who is steward, that sounds about right. So why the independent space? What did you know about it and what appealed to you about it?
1: Um, Well, obviously, you know, in the last five years that I've been retired and even before that there, there, you saw a wave starting. And so, you know, I still read and I still get things and I read up on independence and I try to keep up with what's going on in the industry. And so, I guess when you think about it, I've always been a fan of the old Wayne Gretzky uh, quote that says, escape where the puck is going to be." So, with this bit of gas I had in my tank, I said, "You know, there's been steady movement from large firms to independents, and um, the large firms FA headcounts have been dwindling. And for what it's worth, I'll give you a few numbers that impress me: is that Stewart's now only seven years old, and they've gone from their first FA to 130 FAs." 16 billion in total assets, 2 billion in uh, net new money this year, which I find to be really good compared to many of the wirehouses. And believe it or not, though, it was just written up as the 24th largest IR, RIA. So it's a real firm that I saw the ability to go somewhere that was doing in, in excess of $100 million in revenue. And down the road, I could foresee multiples of that. And that was kind of exciting. The other reason, big reason, I was very impressed with the quality of Stewart's board. You know, one of the first things I did was look at their website and say, okay, if I'm on the board, who am I going to be on with? And quite frankly, my eyebrows went up when I looked because I said, geez, these are senior executives who have been CEOs or in publishing and HR, in government, in private equity. Um, on the board, uh, many people know Charlie Johnston, former uh, Smith Barney CEO, so I'm joining a group of really, really good professionals—not a couple of friends of the Stewart CEO and and president. They're really good, and I'm proud to be with them. So that was that was one of the things that really got me to think, you know, quite clearly about Stewart.
0: Yeah, Bob. Let me ask you a question. It is my experience that. Wirehouse leaders are often very dismissive of the independent space, you know, the whole drinking the Kool-Aid thing. What was your sense of the independent space in general and the advisors that you saw moving there when you were at and then left UBS?
1: Quite frankly, I used to think of the independence as a place where substandard FAs would go who, you know, were getting dinged by the larger firms with uh, you know, it would be called the penalty box. They would have a lower payout because they weren't doing enough business or whatever. And it was a, a landing space for them where they can get paid more. And I never really thought of them having the same quality as, uh, was in our own firm. But now, now that I'm at Stewart, I look and the average FA is uh, approximately a million dollars per FA in in revenue. So it's pretty much the same. And I'm impressed with the people that have gone there and also the longevity. Of the people in larger firms who have made a switch after a long time. So, um, mm-hmm. my view from the past has been changed uh,
0: 100%. Yeah. What's interesting to me is that the diaspora toward independence began with advisors probably a decade ago. And every wirehouse manager at that time dismissed them as just as you said, you know, a place where substandard FAs went. But over time, it became hard to dismiss it as you watch every day billion and five billion dollar teams walk out the door from the wirehouse world. But the second phase of the migration was where wirehouse managers began to move toward the independent space. Some of them because they were forced out and into it, and others, many others, proactively because they began to see what the advisors began to see. And that was exciting. So, let me ask you a question. What were you hearing and seeing from advisors and managers in the field at UBS prior to your departure? What was the temperature? What was the general sort of sense of things of how happy and content and uh, well-serviced they felt?
1: I guess the big thing is that just business was getting much tougher to do every day. Lots of reasons for that. Some possibly corrected within the firm, some not. Regulation had to do a lot with business becoming a lot more onerous. Some of the changes within firms, as I've I noticed within some firms, um, they were allowing their firms or their sales forces to be run by uh, legal compliance or HR would be making decisions for them, which uh, let's just say, I don't think that you had enough input from the field. Um, a lot of managers in the offices felt that they were losing the authority they had or the decision-making that would get things done, that everything became centralized in home office. And um, it was just becoming an issue in doing uh, business, um, you know, specifically at the larger firms that had become much more bureaucratic. Mm
0: -hmm. Yeah. And that's the same thing. I mean, that hasn't changed in five years. Everything you just said, you observed has gotten five years worse, and we hear that even more. Um, One of the things I'll say to you is I spoke before in preparation for this podcast with an ex-manager of UBS, so a manager at UBS that had been there a long time who had the opportunity and the pleasure, as he said, of working under you, and one of the things he said about you was that you were a leader who had walked in the shoes of an advisor, and had run large branches, so walked in the shoes of a manager, and understood the pressure a manager was under, and understood well um, how frustrating it can be to feel limited as an advisor. And your comment that, you know, in a lot of cases, um, these firms now are being run by legal or HR, making decisions for the field can be frustrating. Tell me what you think about that
1: things have changed unbelievably i know when i was a manager i started uh managing around 1985 and did that in branch offices until 2000 2001 so i had 15 years and i saw just a lot of changes and i i would tell you that back in the the 80s and 90s like i looked at it as that was my branch um i did it on behalf of the firm but I ran the branch. I was responsible for those FAs. I was responsible for that area. Um, moving along, just because of inherent changes uh, in the the business, or as I said, the regulators or whatever, a lot of it just started to be pulled away and it became more difficult to run your own show. And then from an administrative or a compliance point of view, a lot of the uh, compliance uh, responsibilities and whatever, then got laid on the managers, who most likely had less time to spend with FAs and trying to coach and counsel them and trying to help them do more business. So the whole management job became a frustrating, uh, somewhat of a frustrating job for some people. And the objectives that you had to hit probably got harder. I guess I was responsible for some of that at some point in time. But when you hit your objectives, um, I would tell you that a lot of managers were frustrated at some firms that okay, I hit my objectives. Well, I didn't make more money either. So there's just a lot that goes into the branch management stuff that can provide some frustration. And that's why I think some people raised their hand and said, I think it's time for a change. In
0: your opinion, Bob, how did the industry or UBS in particular and the industry at large change over time?
1: i 'm going to go back to the beginning when I started, and I you know I think about uh, how did I get started and i was a uh, I was a young guy i was twenty seven years old, looked like a young guy I mean it was difficult to compete because uh, they 'd look at me and say, "How long have you been in the business and um, you know it went from you know, selling a stock or selling a public service electric and gas IPO to a, a group of clients and doing seminars or whatever. I mean, it changed from that to from selling a stock to actually selling customized solutions. So when you think of the, the decades that went by, the changes were unbelievable. I think that the changes in technology have really been a catalyst for the change in the business. I mentioned before I was young, I was 27, and it was really tough for young people to get started. And we didn't have teams that people could get on back then. You started and you started calling people. Right now with the technology, young people can call and through the use of technology and tools, they can compete with any other FA and sometimes even um, better than those that, uh, that are older but stuck in the past. Another big change that I see in the business is, you know, unfortunately, or yeah, I don't know, fortunately or unfortunately, the FAs, the average age of an FA is getting older and older. And I don't know what it is right now, but I know when I was at UBS, it was somewhere in the late 50s, uh, uh, years of age, and now it's probably, I guess, 60 years old. So there are less training programs, and I worry about this gap between the newer FAs, coming in who are going to be able to be there with the firm in the future. And I don't know if training, it, the, you know, the training that exists right now is most of it is just around call centers. So I don't know if that's actually the best training. I could say that I know when I came in, I was very well-trained. Another big change is, as again, I have mentioned the decisions have been pushed away from the field. And so just a, a lot of changes over the years. And I would say the the better managers are those that are able to adapt to them and i i had a lot of changes when i was a manager too and you know what i did i went with the flow i worked with them and i just kept moving on and kept my head facing forward and saying i got to keep moving forward and i did so i never let the changes get the best of me
0: yeah and i think i know but i want to i want to make sure that i'm clear so i get why making why, why disempowering managers is bad for a manager but how is that bad or how does that impact the advisors who work for them?
1: Let me give you an example. What, the first day I was at UBS, I called my FA and said, um, what do I need to know? And he said, you need to know it's tough to work here. I go, what are you talking about? And he goes, the, all the things that you have to do to get business done is ridiculous. And you just can't get things done. So I said, all right, do me a favor. Let me talk to your administrative assistant. And I talked to her and I said, tell me the five most difficult or what you would consider the most idiotic things that the firm does that makes your life miserable. She goes, Oh, that's easy. Here's the five things. And that day I talked to five other assistants and they were telling me the same things. So what happens is all of these things, especially with the assistants, the assistants are trying to get things done for clients and they see roadblocks. And so what I tried to do way back then was push the decision making back to the branch, where the branch office manager would say, all right, here's what we are going to do. And they would have to live and die by that decision. If they don't, then a piece of paper or an email or a request or whatever sits in operations or compliance or somewhere for a week or two where a client is waiting for an answer. A client waiting for an answer is not a happy client. So that's how it, it impacts the FAs. Somehow, it somehow, it tends to undermine the FAs and it creates uh, what I used to call cranky clients.
0: Yeah. And in your opinion, Bob, how has bank ownership of firms like Merrill and UBS, for example, impacted both cultural identity as well as how advisors feel about
1: the firm? Uh, double-edged sword there. First, uh, I love the fact that some of the banks came in and, and I'll call it took over the firms. If they did not, the firm might not be in existence today. So thank you to the firms that uh, save uh, those that they took over. Now, on the other hand, I've seen very few of any examples of firms that have been taken over that the integration went, I guess, really well. It's very tough to break down this uh, shirts and skins that exist between the two firms, who won, who lost, or the, we are the acquirer attitude, so we're gonna do it our way. So in my view, I've seen, I guess my view is that FAs have become less loyal to the combined firms because they lost that whole, that family aspect of the firm. This is my family, there's trust, uh, there's culture. And in too many times they've done things that, um, that have been, have negated some of that trust or the culture. So I haven't seen a lot of examples you know, I'm sure that they are out there, but, uh, you know, I don't want to name any firms right now, good or bad.
0: Yeah, no, no, of course. And uh, an important question I'm curious about, what do you think of these retire in place or sunset programs that are so popular today? From the firm's perspective, there are great ways to tie advisors up. Sentiment has been mixed. Great for senior advisors. Some of the next gen inheritors don't love being tied by the firm. But examples, Merrill's CTP or UBS's Alpha program, et cetera. What do you think? Good for next-gen advisors or not so good?
1: I love the program for almost all constituents. You know, they're good for FAs to some extent because what they allow FAs to do is create equity in businesses that they built over a period of years. So if I was still an FA right now and I would have been in the business for 41 years, if I decided to retire... It's nice for me to be able to sell the business, so to speak, and get what I built up like any business owner. So in that way, it's good. I think it's very good for clients. And that's probably the more important part because it's a much smoother transition where you're allowed to work with a a person or a team, you know, rather than get a phone call one day from someone who says, hey, um, Bob left and I'm handling your account. A little abrupt. So, you know, what it does, is it allows for a very smooth transition. The thing that I I guess I'm not sure that I don't like as much about the programs or what I like about Steward versus some others is Steward, along with Raymond uh, James, does not have a, um, a non-solicit policy. So when you're in these programs and you say, I'm going to go in the program, you immediately have signed your book away and your book is owned by the firm. At Steward, your book is never owned by the firm, it's owned by you. And- I kind of like that because it was your book for forty years. On the forty-year, the first day that you signed it, I don't know why it should be, you know, anything having to do with that book can be taken away. And firms could do something that you might not want to be done with your clients. So I like that aspect about um, about Stewart and Raymond James.
0: Well, so you hit it on the head. I mean, your comment that those programs allow an advisor to create equity in a business they built—true. But that advisor doesn't really own the business at the end of the day or the next gen inheritor who's buying that business out of his own revenue doesn't own the business at the end of the day. And it's one of the biggest reasons why folks are going independent, because if they had control, if the senior advisor who's retiring or the next gen inheritor had control over the business, and the things, the mandates that might change affecting the business over the life of the agreement, that would be one thing. But the biggest complaint we hear about it is that these advisors have no control and they're not really building equity that they don't own at the end of the day.
1: What yeah, do you think about that? I don't like that. Then, the, then you really didn't build equity, so to speak, because when you still have an equity interest in the business, you should have some say in how that business could be run.
0: Right. And that's the point that you're, as an employee, you don't really have control over how that business is run. And that's the issue, I think, that a lot of advisors who are at least mostly the next gen advisors are worried about signing on
1: to them. Yeah, they could take the clients that are there, give them to another FA if they want, they could give them to a call center if they want, they could do whatever they want. And I'm not sure that that's the best thing again for clients.
0: Yeah, that is definitely congruent with what we're hearing. I want to shift gears for a minute to the independent space. So in your opinion, what do you think the factors are that have been most responsible for driving advisors away from the wirehouse world toward independence?
1: I guess a couple of things. I would tell you that I don't call around to a lot of firms these days and talk to FAs. I just don't think it serves me well to do that. It serves the firms. There's no interest in doing that. So But what I do is I glean some things when I might talk to someone or someone calls me and says, how are you doing? And what I hear a lot from multiple firms is a kind of a disillusionment of what the firm used to be and what it is today. And they go, it's not the same. And I believe when someday when someone wakes up in the morning and says it's not the same, some FAs are going to say, you know what, I should look under another tent and see if there's something there. And I find that there's a lot of that. You know, secondly, a lot of the movement is just the ability to run their own business without edicts from the home office and, and central management. You know, many of the larger firms have become very bureaucratic, either with policies or or with pay. You know, I did a lot of things with pay. I tried to do the best I can, but you know, some FAs have described the, the whole pay issue as death by a thousand cuts. So, you know, one of the things that appealed to me with stewards is I go, how do you pay people? They go, it's simple. It's 50%. I go, okay, well, what's next? And they go, nothing. There's no small ticket policy. There's nothing for discounting. There's, you get paid 50% if you're an employee for stewards. So I just think a lot of the things together FAs wake up one day and say, I'm not sure if this is the place that I should be. It's not the same as what I signed up for before. And basically, I would leave it at that and say that that's it.
0: Yeah. And do you think that senior leadership at the big firms take the threat of independence seriously?
1: I do. I think that they have to. They look at the independence, they look at the Cerulli numbers. You know, the last I saw a Cerulli report, it said in 2010, wirehouses were 50% of wealth management revenue. In 2020, it's 40%. That's a pretty big cut of all of the wealth management revenue. That's a huge cut in there. So they have to take it seriously. You know, every now and then I stick my nose into uh, Advisor Hub, and Advisor Hub has this recruiting scorecard in there. And I look and see, I wonder what's going on. And I can't find a wirehouse in the top 10 in recruiting in there. So I don't talk to the, the management of, of the other firms, but I know that if I was there, I would be taking it seriously. So I think that they would have to uh, also.
0: And what do you think they're going to do about it? In other words, if they are taking it seriously, do you think that there are other things they will do to stem the tide of attrition? And and, or do you think that they will look to launch independent channels of their own?
1: Uh, Very interesting question. Structurally, I don't think that there's much they can do. What they have to do is when you think of it, uh, you know, it's just how do I stem the tide of people leaving? When I go back, the word that I used was disillusionment. Give them hope. Give them a place where they want to work is probably the most important thing. Uh, They need to reestablish loyalty and trust to keep their FAs. They need to stop changing things every year. The big firms have to work hard to establish a culture where FAs are, again, really proud to work and want to work at. And they've done a number of things that haven't instilled trust or loyalty to the firm. I'll give as an example, that a lot of the, the firms will have these non-solicit policies. And I don't think, on one hand, you, you say, give us all of your trust and loyalty. On the other hand, you say, well, you can't talk to your client you you take you know if you leave the firm. I'm not sure that there's an equal sign between those. So I don't think that many of the firms are going to start an independent within their firm I just think there's too much conflict in having multiple FA delivery channels where one FA is sitting at a desk doing business one way and one is doing another. I think it's been tried before and I don't believe it's been so successful. So I really don't think big firms are going to launch independent channels within their firms. And I also have the suspicion that if they do, there's a cost to doing that. And right now, I don't think that any firm wants to take on additional cost to reduce uh, profitability. So I don't think that that's gonna happen.
0: So it brings up an interesting point because while it seems logical to me and you that when I say, what do the firms need to do to prevent attrition, it seems logical. Give people hope, give them a place where they want to come to work, establish trust and loyalty. Yet what they're doing, instead of doing those things or taking actions that would instill more trust and loyalty, instead they're seeking to tie more advisors up via this these retire-in-place programs. And again, while the retire-in-place programs can be very good for a senior advisor, it allows him to monetize his life's work. It isn't always in the best interest of the next gen and certainly shouldn't be the only way. It certainly doesn't do a lot to engender trust and loyalty. So it feels like they've sort of got it wrong. Do you agree with that?
1: Yes, there are are two things that they can do. One is just tone down the bureaucracy a little bit. And I'm not saying blow up compliance or regulatory or whatever. Maybe even it's, it's more communicate better as to why they are doing some things or why they have to do things. I think communication is a major part of of trying to establish uh, trust and loyalty within the, uh, the FA ranks. So I do believe that there's a lot to do that have nothing to do with making major changes in the firm. It just has to do with showing respect of FAs in what they do and make sure that the FAs know that they're important and feel loved.
0: Yeah, I think that's a good, respect is a good word. I think that a lot of what goes on in the major firms feels like a lack of respect. The advisors feel more like a distribution mechanism as opposed to a person that the firm, you know, really cares about. Let me go back to your role at Stewart. So I know you're on the board, but how involved in recruiting or day-to-day operations will you be?
1: I don't think that any board member of any firm should be intimately involved in the day to day. So, um, you know, I've kind of been there, done that. And it was very clear when I came on to Steward, I don't intend to run the day to day and I don't intend to jump in front of the senior executives who were there, who have done a very capable job of growing the firm and running the firm for the last seven years and they've done really well. And the board is very, very supportive of them. So if one of them calls me and says, can I run something by you? I'm certainly going to help answer the question. You know, like a lot of what I have is what they call institutional experience. A lot of things that they run into, I've probably run into myself over the last 40 years, and I'm happy to help, and I'm happy to give them my opinion. If they accept my opinion and do it, fine. If they don't accept my opinion and do something else, fine, but at least I offered um, the you know, the, the the bigger issue is, um, you know, they'll be responsible for their decisions. They are responsible for running day to day. I'm responsible for uh, more or less just for them, not the whole firm.
0: Mm-hmm. And how about recruiting, Bob? I mean, I have to imagine that there are plenty of advisors that read what I read. When I read that Bob Mulholland joined the board of Stewart, I said, wow, good for Stewart." Since you've joined the board, have some of the advisors that know you and respected you while you were at UBS reached out to you? And what are you hearing from them?
1: I've talked to a bunch of advisors from uh, Stewart along the way. Uh, We had a call, I gave them my phone number and say, "If, uh, if you're interested, give me a yell. And so a lot of FAs took me up on it. And I'm glad that they did, because it gave me the opportunity to talk to them about how are we doing? What are you doing? If you were me, what would you uh, relay to the senior management? So the people at Stewart I found, are um, they're very happy. Uh, they And I'm not saying that to try to you know be the salesman or anything, but many of them are long-tenured FAs who were at some other firm for 10, 20, 30 years, and they just figured out, I, I want something different. And they came over, and now they say, look, I uh, love it here. And one of the reasons is, they go, we're all owners of the firm, we're shareholders. And that's important to them. And it, maybe in a smaller firm, it's different than you're a stockholder in a larger firm, but they are owners and everyone is owners and they feel as partners. Um, a lot of them comment to me, it's much easier to do business here. you know. And then they say, "You know, I, I came over and as I got here, I, I realized I should have made um, this move a long time ago. And that really solidifies with me that... Um, Right now we have a pretty good place to work, which makes me proud to be working here. Mm-hmm.
0: But what I was getting at was, how about recruiting advisors to Stewart, coming from the wirehouse world? Do you hear, have you been in conversation with any advisors that are considering independence or considering leaving, and what do you think they value most, or what's on their minds the most?
1: Well, I'll answer it this way. If you're saying to me, "Have I talked to any potential recruits?" The answer is yes. Um, I don't do it every day. Um, If asked, I will. Um, I'm a shareholder of Steward. If I talk to someone on the phone who decides, hey, based on the conversation that they might have had with me, um, they'll come. That's going to help the firm grow. Hopefully, it helps my stock in the firm a little bit. So I have talked to a handful of recruits. Um, Most of the recruits that I talk to ask me about things generally they ask about the industry. I don't get down to specifics. And the way that I used to recruit at the other firms, which was much more detailed, much more involved, I don't get involved. I have never talked to anyone at this place about a deal. I just basically talked to them about the advantage, why I came to Stewart, the advantages that I see with the firm, the things that I like about the firm, and I leave it at that. And I think that most people are more interested in the 30,000 foot view than you know, like right on the ground, and that's what I try to give them.
0: So when those folks ask you, you know, hey, you've had four decades of experience, where do you think the industry headed? I mean, it's changed a whole lot in the last four decades. So where do you think the industry is headed? And what do you think is coming next?
1: Again, another interesting question. And when you've You sit back and I think about my career and, you know, the number of years I look and I say, wow, what I did when I came in and what the FAs are doing today is entirely different. I came back, I only did transactions. I'd call people on the phone and say, we have the best research, so that'll help you with your stock picking. We've come a long way from there. You know, the next big thing in the industry, and I call them seismic shifts, was the whole issue of of asset gathering and and actually paying FAs based on the amount of assets. And I think that that was a major change in the industry. Uh, went to international investing was big. Uh, we very rarely did anything international way, way back when. Fee-based became very, very popular late 80s, financial planning in the 90s, holistic comprehensive advice after that. And right now, I just think that the biggest thing moving forward is is going to be the way the the new tools and the way that we will use the technology tools that we have to complement personal advice.
0: So, Bob, with respect to technology, do you think that the big firms and the independent firms are on a level playing field? Do you think that they can compete easily with each other?
1: I do believe that the big firms and the independents are on the level playing fields because we can go get about any technology that is available today. The larger firms will have it in-house, and we will go out and get the best that we can. So, um, yeah, I, I do believe that platform, technology, all of that, what is available at one place at a larger firm will be available at a smaller firm. And that's what one of the reasons that FAs are saying, I get the same stuff, but I can run my own business. This is a pretty good deal when I look at what bigger firms are doing these days they're spending a ton of money on uh, technology so I would say that you know many of the bigger firms their technology is is very robust I mean well we've tied into a bigger firm with Raymond James but the difference in the technology between the bigger firms and the smaller firms like a steward is how do you use that technology and how do you allow your FAs to use it? So I'll just, you know, I'll give us one like, quick example, I guess, is social media. Social media is very, very difficult to get into that arena with technology at a larger firm. I think that with a, a Raymond James, uh, you know, but more specifically with Steward, social media and use of things like that or marketing campaigns or whatever, I think, are a little bit more flexible than you're going to find at the, other, at the other larger firms. So again, it's this layer of bureaucracy and policy that gets thrown, o- thrown over everything. But I do believe that the, the larger firms have done a, an outstanding job of increasing their technology abilities. Yeah. Let me add something. I think the oldest big thing is the, the big thing that is here to stay. And what that is, it's called personal contact and advice. You know, when I think back to the late 1990s, I shuddered one day when I looked at a magazine and the cover of the magazine was entitled Death of the Stockbroker. And it was at the advent of all of the discounters who were going to undercut all the prices. And they said that they're going to drive the stockbroker out of business. Well, it's 25 years later and they didn't drive the stockbrokers out of business. As a matter of fact, it's been one of the best businesses to be in ever. Investors, to me, I think it's important that they talk about their big decisions, that they have someone who's a trusted partner, and they want to be comfortable with these combined decisions that they make with their financial advisors. And I've always told groups of FAs, you know what you sell? You sell comfort. And that's the best thing that you can sell. So to me, this convergence of tech and personal contact is a huge deal. I'll give you a very striking example right now. How many people who are in the business a year ago thought that they would be doing the number of Zoom calls that they're doing today? Nobody. They probably didn't even know what Zoom was. Now Zoom is a major way to contact and advise clients. I'll tell you what, when the pandemic is gone, hopefully sooner than later, Zoom is still gonna be here and and the FAs are still gonna use Zoom. So I'll just use that as a, as a way to say how do you combine technology and personal contact? That to me is one of the most striking examples.
0: Yeah. So let me ask you a question. If a youngish advisor, someone who was, you know, in the early stages of their career with real potential, came to you and asked for your advice on career strategy, what would you tell him or her? So if the choices were stay at one firm for the whole of your career, two, make at least one well-timed move and take the biggest recruiting deal you can get. Three is go independent. Four is go into management. And five is anything else.
1: All right, I'm going to pick five. Final answer, okay? Anything else. You may not like this, but every FA that I've spoken with and tried to counsel over the years, I've always told them, concentrate on the task at hand. Work on today. Don't have your head up thinking about what am I going to do next year? What am I going to do the year? Just concentrate on what you have to do and things will come to you and they'll be good. What I would tell them is if they ask, how do you think I get in? I would say join a high-performing client-oriented team. I think the aspect of joining a team is good. If they help integrate you you get trained better on a team, I believe, than uh, you're going to, and most likely in a call center. I would uh, tell them to try to develop within that team a strategy where you could fit in to help them grow, whether it's, I'm gonna deal with the children of the, the more wealthy baby boomers that you have, and I'm gonna try to bring them on and make sure that we get the, the those that will inherit the, uh, the assets later. I might think about having them specialize I, I think i definitely advise them to get a CFP because I think it's important. And I think that labels are important, to tell you the truth, when, when you're trying to sell yourself to clients. I would talk to them as if you can in your community, and in most communities you can, find out where some of the diverse populations are. And so if you have a, if you have a Spanish part of the community, there will be a lot of wealthy Spanish people there too. So especially if you're Spanish speaking, work on spanish-speaking clients you know it's, it's, it's another angle but try to find your own niche and again just with your moves keep your head down work hard do your best and good things will come to you
0: i think that's a great answer i love
1: that answer yeah now you asked about management and here's what i would tell you about management back in 1980 the managers that i had in my office asked me begged me pushed me into management and I said, okay, I'm going to give it a try. And you know what? It ended up a long time later. I guess it was a, a pretty good move for me. I would say that I've really enjoyed helping FAs grow, get a huge kick about that. I found it very rewarding. You know, so, but in, in management, your rewards don't come from specifically what you do. They come from other people. So what I would say is if you're thinking about being a manager, you have to be wired that way. That you're probably more interested than other people than personally yourself i did this i did that all of my business was through everyone else the all of those people were the ones that raised me on their shoulders and, and pushed me up and so you know i can't say enough about the people that i worked with that they they responded they were great
0: yeah and you know it's interesting to me that you still have that perspective mostly because when i started in this business almost 25 years ago The job of branch management was the pinnacle. Like when you reached success as an advisor, you were really successful when you went into management. But as management in the branch management became more disempowered and things became more bureaucratic and advisors became more sort of wholesale um, frustrated or disenfranchised, the job of management was a lot less fun. And I think there are a lot of managers, not that they're regretful, I think they'd say the same thing you say that, you know, I, I'm filled up by the by aiding and facilitating the success of others. But I'm not sure that it's quite, it's viewed with the same sort of aura that it once was.
1: That's probably true. We, we talked about that before. And if I'm talking to a, uh, a manager on the phone who says, what do I do? And. You know, and I'm kind of disillusioned and whatever. I I just I tell them you're looking the wrong way. You're looking up and you should look down. Concentrate on your people and your job will be rewarding. And just, you know, to me, that's one of my, you know, one of the axioms that I've always kind of lived by. I've tried to make the best decisions that I could over the years. I am a firm believer of the three-legged stool. That when I make a decision, I have to d- make a decision that's good for the, the firm, that's good for the FA, and it's good for the client. And when all three of them are treated equally and fairly, the stool doesn't fall over. If one of them is treated too fairly or unfairly, the stool falls over. And I would explain that to people, too. When I talk to them, I go, I deal, I, I'm a three-legged stool principal guy. So this is why I made that decision. This is why it's good for clients, uh, uh, FAs in the firm, and I have to stick with it because that's the way that I think. So I just think if you're honest with people as managers, they'll cut you some slack and they'll, they'll be okay with many of the decisions that you made.
0: One final question, Bob, and I'm so grateful for your time. From your perspective, having seen and witnessed firsthand so many advisors' businesses over the years, what are the things that you think the very best advisors do?
1: Again, I'm going to give an answer that I, I'm not sure that you think is the, the pat answer. But the best advisors, it's not about being the smartest. It's not about being, uh, you know, I use the tools the best, or I'm the best asset allocator, or maybe even the you know best performance uh, performance does help and it's really important. but I think that best advisors what they do is they relate and if you can't relate to your clients it doesn't matter what your performance is, what you do nothing else matters you have to relate you have to develop really strong relationships with these clients. so there's a very psychological aspect between an, an FA, an advisor and a client and probably the most important thing is that the best advisors develop trust. These, mm-hmm. their clients trust them implicitly and there's a bond to the clients. And I said this before, and I'll, I guess I'll leave with, with it, is the best advisors simply give clients comfort.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, and what a wonderful thing to say, especially in the midst of a pandemic. What more could an advisor do then give their clients comfort.
1: Uh, that is uh, that's true, and that's why that's why I think I, I ended with it.
0: Yeah, well, thank you, Bob. I can't thank you enough for your perspectives, for your your graciousness in sharing them with us, and uh, certainly we're excited to see what's to come with Stuart, and wish you all the best. Mm-hmm. Bob shared many pearls of wisdom, but it was perhaps his perspective on what wirehouse leaders can do to stave off attrition and create more trust and loyalty amongst the advisor force that was most interesting. That is, to give them hope, respect, more open communication, and a place to come to work that they enjoy. Sounds pretty simple to me. I thank you for listening. And I encourage you to visit our website, diamond-consultants.com, and click on the tools and resources link for valuable content. You'll also find a link to subscribe for regular updates to the series. And if you're not a recipient of our weekly email, Perspectives for Advisors, click on the blog link to browse recent articles. These written pieces are an ideal way to stay informed about what's going on in the wealth management industry without expending the energy that full-on exploration requires. Feel free to email or call me if you have specific questions. I can be reached at 908-879-1002 or by cell at 973-476-8578 or by email at mdiamond at diamond-consultants.com. Please note that all requests are handled with complete discretion and confidentiality. And again, if you enjoyed this episode, feel free to share it with a colleague who might benefit from its content. And a special thanks to advisorhub.com for sharing this podcast with your viewers and subscribers. This is Mindy Diamond on Independence.